Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I know I'm getting older because stepping up onto this is starting to hurt. Wow. <clears throat> John, thank you for reading that scripture for us. And uh, you know, today is Palm Sunday. But I got to be honest with you, I'll share an early memory. One of the earliest memories I have of growing up in the church was confusion about this whole Holy Week thing. I have vivid memories of um, showing up at church one day as a Sunday school student, and my Sunday school teacher threw this branch at me. He basically said, here, take this. And I'm like, why? And he said, what I want you to do is when all the other Sunday school kids line up down the aisles of the, the sanctuary during the grown-up worship service, just wave it like this. I'm like, this, this church stuff is getting weirder and weirder. And I didn't understand. And then they even said something else. They said, now we want you to also shout this word while you wave the branch. Shout Hosanna. I'm like, who's that? I thought it was a girl's name. Like, who, who, what's Hosanna? So there I was as a kid, shaking a branch, going, Hosanna, Hosanna, and I'm completely lost. No idea what I'm doing, what it means, why this matters. <clears throat> and a lot of church was like that for me. It wasn't because the teachers were bad. It wasn't because people were trying to hide the truth from me. But it was just because I wasn't ready to see in Jesus who he really was. Even if they tried to explain it to me, I don't know that I'd have been ready to really understand. I share this story because... Maybe, like me, for many of you, your experience growing up in the church was that Jesus was this figure always right in front of you, but you didn't really know him for a very long time. Maybe for some of you, he's such a familiar name even to this day, but you can't really claim that you ever had an awakening where Jesus became more than what he was to you as a child growing up in Sunday school. You know, the passage that um, John read for us was what some would um, label as the triumphal approach or the triumphal entry. It was Jesus making his final entrance into the city of Jerusalem during his earthly life. And unlike all the other times he had entered that great city, quietly and with a small band of followers, this time he rode in on a colt announcing himself as the Savior who he would come to be. He didn't enter quietly in the night. He didn't enter anonymously this time. He came in announcing himself basically to anybody who knew what they were seeing as the king, the Messiah, who would deliver. And yet, even as he entered, he realized that most of the people lining the streets cheering him on would go on to completely miss the point of who he was. They were excited about something but they would soon realize they were excited about something other than why he was coming into the city. Like many of those people, I spent my whole childhood missing Jesus. Just missing the point. He was always right there, and I didn't see him. And as the verses come to a close that John read for us, these are the following verses after that. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. 
But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, I think most pastors who love their congregations have moments where they really worry about whether the people looking back on Sunday morning while he preaches really see Jesus for who he is. I think the setting, this activity that we're engaged in right now is very familiar. Some of us have been doing this since we were very, very young. But I go through seasons of that fear as well. I wonder if the people looking back at me really know who Jesus Christ is to them. So I want to give you some invitations, some challenges that I hope will jar you a little bit so that you won't spend your life missing Jesus while he's standing right in front of you. Here's the first one, and that is to respect Jesus. Respect Jesus. You know, Jesus made his final journey um, into Jerusalem, starting in the city of Jericho. And you may not know this, but Jericho happens to be the lowest elevation city on the whole earth. It, It rests about 850, 860 feet below sea level. And so you're really starting from almost underwater. You know, like that, that's how deep down you are. And it's an uphill climb all the way to Jerusalem. It's about 20 and a half miles. Uh, it would take a good day on foot walking that. And it's hot and it's unpleasant and it's uphill. You're talking about on your treadmill, an incline that's like this, okay? You start at almost 900 feet below sea level. You end up at the crest on the peak of the Mount of Olives at about nearly 3,000 feet above sea level. So that is not an easy climb, and that's the journey Jesus embarks on as he makes his way to this city of Jerusalem. In order to get to Jerusalem, you have to pass through a little town called Bethany, and Bethany was a very special place. In fact, I just bought a book called God's Favorite Place on Earth because the author observed that Jesus spent a lot of time in Bethany And his closest friends, his most emotional times, were in that village. It's a special place for him. And as he's getting ready to die, he makes one last pass through this place that was so special to him. And as he enters, he sends a couple of his disciples ahead of him and says, I'm not going to walk in this time anonymously. You run ahead of me and you're going to find a little donkey that no one has ever ridden before. And I want you to get it, and when they ask you what it's for, just tell them I need it, and they'll release it to you. And this was in fulfillment of a prophecy that Zechariah had made 500 years before Jesus. Now, obviously, if you're cynic, you're like, well, that's not really fulfillment of prophecy. He's engineering this whole deal. He's got it all prearranged. That's okay, because Jesus isn't trying to create some illusion that he's fulfilling it. He's saying, I know the prophecy, and I'm identifying myself openly. I am the one the prophecies talked about. I am the Messiah. All those times before he'd said, shh, don't tell anybody what you just saw. Don't spread the word about me, but this time is different. And his disciples are like, something's going down, because Jesus isn't hiding anymore. 
he's going to write in an open fulfillment of a prophecy that every self-respecting Jew knew. When they saw this little donkey riding in, they would know what this guy's trying to claim. And it wasn't just any weekend. It was the weekend of the Passover. And the normal population of Jerusalem had doubled, maybe even tripled. The city was just packed with pilgrims who were there to worship. And there was this electric atmosphere of religious expectation, spiritual expectation throughout the whole city. The reason I'm starting with this call to respect Jesus is that as Jeannie so capably pointed out, a donkey is not an animal you ride in on when you want to command respect and fear. That's like if you found out um, that the president's limo was a 1988 Oldsmobile. You're like, man. You know, and and I've, I've seen that before. When I've traveled to poorer nations and I see the vehicles that their dignitaries drive, I see the buildings that they're so proud of, and I look at them and go, wow, I've seen better. And I think there's something humble, almost aggressively humble, about riding in, and not even on the full-grown donkey, but on the baby donkey. Okay, I mean, this is like, the, the picture is ridiculous. There's a, a grown man riding on a little baby donkey. No one's going to look at that and go, dang, dang. And yet the symbolism would be unmistakable. It wasn't the sight that would strike a chord with people. It was the significance of what they were seeing. Now, what's interesting is that the image of Jesus portrayed throughout the Gospels really runs counter to the picture we have of the man's man, the respectable man, the strong man. He was broke. I mean, flat broke. He was so broke that when he tried to teach a lesson about giving to Caesar and giving to God, he had to borrow someone else's coin to make the illustration. He's like, let me teach you. Dang, I don't even have a coin. Can I borrow a penny to teach a lesson. That's how broke this guy was. He was homeless, and he never showed any interest in bettering his finances. He was a guy who's broke and totally okay being broke. He's a guy who never defended himself when people insulted him. You could stab him in the back, and he's like, that's okay. He repeatedly forgave people who willingly wounded him. Not accidentally, my bad, but I'm intending to wound you, to insult you. And he kept forgiving them, and the man's men all around would look at that. And there's a lot of Christians today who cannot respect the image of Jesus they encounter in Scripture. In fact, I think Mark Driscoll, former pastor of Mars Hill Church, maybe put it best, he captured the zeitgeist of an entire generation of frustrated Christian men when he gave an interview in the 2007 issue of Relevant Magazine. Here's what Mark Driscoll said. Some want to recast Jesus as a limp-wrist hippie in a dress with a lot of product in his hair who drank decaf and made pithy Zen statements about life while shopping for the perfect pair of shoes. In Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter. You know what a pride fighter is, MMA? With a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is the guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. I heard him say almost the exact same words live at a conference in Minneapolis. 
And I was like, whoa, he actually said those words. But he gave voice to a feeling a lot of people have had. Our Christ is a wuss. He's broke. He's gentle. He's meek. He doesn't defend himself. He keeps letting people off the hook no matter how many times they stab him in the back. And when they arrest him, he doesn't even let his friends draw a sword in in defense of him. And when they put him on a cross, he went without a word, not even a sound of protest. How do you worship someone who looks so weak? The reason you can respect Jesus is because his meekness should never be confused with weakness. His meekness was by design. In fact, I would say this, and I hope this rings in your memory for a long time. Jesus is meek because we are weak. Jesus is meek because we are weak. You know, every time people encounter God in Scripture, even when they encounter the angels who lived in God's presence... The first reaction is always terror, fear that they will be struck dead. To stand in the presence of God is not a casual experience. For a sinful human being to stand before a holy God, there's terror involved with that encounter. You don't just go, God, what's up? You, You are so aware in that moment of how low you are and how great he is. And yet, though Jesus was God, people flocked to him. In fact, the people who couldn't find their place in society repeatedly found a comforting presence in Jesus Christ. It wasn't because he was the most powerful man they'd ever met. It was because he was meek that those who definitely needed to know God could approach him. His meekness was not weakness. It was because we are weak. Because he knows that we could not, in our right mind, approach a God who is holy. He came in the form of a meek king who could be approached. If Jesus came as he truly was in his fearsome authority, no one would have walked along the road next to him. He was also meek because it was through his meekness that he would purchase our salvation. In the garden when he was being arrested, Peter drew a sword. In fact, he ran after one of the the low-ranking guys who was with the high priest, and he sliced the guy's ear off, and he thought, now it begins, it's on. And he wanted to start the revolution, and Jesus held him back and said, no, this is not the way it's going to go down. The revolution I'm bringing is not going to be by might, and if I wanted to, believe me, I could rain down hell on these guys. The fury I carry in my hand is unimaginable, But I will not, because this salvation, this deliverance will be had through meekness, not by a show of force. It's the only way, because I will take upon myself the judgment that belongs to all of you. He is meek because we are weak, not because he is weak, but because we are. And we could not have faced the judgment that was coming to us. And so he took it upon himself. You know, it's easy to disregard Jesus if you think about the way he's portrayed again and again in the church, in culture, in scripture. But never mistake the meekness of Jesus as weakness. It is his gentleness that saves us. 
And I hope that translates into a rethinking for us about what makes us strong, about what makes us powerful, what kind of leaders we respond to and instinctively trust. Let me give you another invitation, and that is to recognize Jesus. See, when he was passing through that village of Bethany that was so special to him, He had one family in particular he was very, very close with. Two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. They were very close friends of his. And as he was passing through on his final journey, his final approach to Jerusalem, he heard the news that before he had arrived in Bethany, his good friend Lazarus had died, and he came into the village to find grieving all over the town because Lazarus was well-loved. He had already been buried for some days And yet, as a foreshadowing of the great power he was about to demonstrate, Jesus performed a miracle, and he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus, having been raised from his tomb, began walking with Jesus on that final approach to Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine, as word got around, that a huge crowd said, this dude is not your average dude, and they began to follow him as well. People who are just interested and drawn by the stories of a miracle began to follow him, and he he went from a small band of disciples into a growing crowd, an entourage of onlookers who were curious about what this guy was up to. In fact, John, in his record of the, the triumphal entry, says, when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. So there was already a bit of sensation involved with Jesus coming to Jerusalem. This guy raises dead people. I, I don't care what age you're in, what era in history. If that happened today, we'd be hanging out with this guy too. I wouldn't care if the playoffs are on, if the final four is on. If somebody raised someone from the dead in Hoffman Estates, TV, it gets clicked off. I'm there. I got to see this for myself. If I told you this guy sitting in the front row was dead yesterday, would that not at least wake you up a little? If you're falling asleep right now, wouldn't that wake you up and say, hey, you know, Ben was dead yesterday. He's alive. Look at him. You'd be like, what? That's not your everyday thing, is it? And so there's this growing crowd, and in fact, news of the miracle runs ahead of them into Jerusalem, and all those pilgrims there for the Passover hear, did you hear the news? This rabbi, this troublemaker, this guy who is constantly being hounded by the religious leaders, he raised a guy from death in the village of Bethany, and he's coming into town. And so it says that the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival in in the city had heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, And they come out and they had palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. That's important. Their waving of palm branches really was a foreshadowing, a revealing of what their expectations were. And Jeannie touched on what Hosanna means. Let me unpack it just a little further. The word Hosanna is a loaded word because it started out as a request, a plea. Save us! But then as deliverance came, it became a shout among the Christians of God has saved us. But for others, it became a plea, oh my gosh, save us. And let me explain how that works. Let's say your favorite football team is down by three, four points. 
And you're going to win if you could just hang on. But then all of a sudden, the other team, the running back makes an end run around and he's broken free. And the only thing between him and the winning touchdown for the, for the enemy is your safety. And the whole crowd shouts, Hosanna! Uh, if I could put it in modern language, Hosanna is something like, let's go! Let's go! You ever hear that in sports? Let's go, let's go. And everybody collectively with their telekinetic powers, get him, do not. And you're saying, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And when he catches up to the runner and he levels him like Gary Fensick in 1985, just pummels the guy and the guy's just laying there and everyone goes, let's go. I see my son do that when he scores in basketball. Let's go. And it's like a shout of triumph. It's no longer a plea, a prayer, a hope. It is, yes, Let's go. But once in a while, the safety flubs the tackle and the runner breaks through. And that's when the crowd goes, let's go. Seriously? Let's go. It's disappointment. It starts with a plea and based on what happens next, it's either becoming a shout of triumph or a statement of the greatest disappointment. Come on. That's it. That's what you've got. You're in the NFL and you can't make a tackle. Let's go. And that exactly happened in Jerusalem that day, that week. That there were people all over going, could this be the guy? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. But a week later, some would say, let's go. And others would say, let's go, guys. Let's go home. The idea of palms is rooted in Roman culture. Whenever uh, a leader, especially a military leader, returned to the city in triumph, he was called the triumphator. I I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's not like an English word, but triumphator is the guy who triumphed. And he would take off his armor, put down his arms, and he would put on a civilian toga and ride a civilian horse, not a war horse, and he would be brought into town with people you know, waving palm branches and shouting in victory and triumph because their military leader has come home a winner. It's like a ticker tape parade for the team who wins the Stanley Cup. Our team did it, and everybody loves a winner, and that's the whole symbolism of the palm branches, is this is the guy who's going to finally rid us of this oppressive regime in Rome. We're tired of the Romans. We're tired of how dominant they are. We're tired of how they tax us, how they own us, how they boss us around. We're so tired of it. And maybe a guy who can raise dead people has the juice to overthrow Rome and be our deliverer. That's what they wanted. Here's what I learned from that. If you have the wrong expectations from someone, you will guaranteed walk away disappointed in them. If what you come to someone for is a certain thing, like, like you know how it is, if you believe that doctors are wizards and every time you just walk into a hospital, they're going to make you better no matter what, If that's the expectation you have, when a doctor says, I don't know what you have, or I don't know how to help you, or current medical technology has no help for you, there's a terrible disappointment, isn't there? A deflation, because in your mind, doctors are wizards. They can fix everything. All I have to do is get to the hospital, and it will all be well. And when you hear the news, I'm sorry, it's devastating. 
It's devastating. Well, when you expect the Messiah to shed off the shackles of Rome, and in his first few days in town, he gets arrested and put on trial. And it looks like he's going to be put to death in a criminal's execution. You go from let's go to let's go. So many people walk away from Jesus disappointed because they really thought he was going to make their earthly life so much better. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about our earthly life. He does make it better. But many people come to Jesus with only that hope. That's the boundary marker of what they want to draw from Jesus is will you please elevate my situation? Because my life sucks. I hate my family. I hate my body. I hate my job. I hate my bank balance. I hate everything about my life. If you have power, do something about this. If you're a savior, save me from my life. That doesn't mean he doesn't care about that. He cares a great deal more than you might imagine. But if that's all you want from Jesus, that's not what he came primarily to do in our lives. And if that's what you want from him, you will join the crowds of the disappointed who shouted a week later, crucify him. Because disappointment that great isn't just, oh man, it's, I'm done. It's the way my wife, after last season, divorced the bears. She's become a Seattle Seahawks fan. Some disappointment isn't casual, like, oh, well, there's always next season. Sometimes it's, I'm done with you. You're dead to me. I think that's what happened to the crowds. We thought you were the guy. You were such a huge disappointment because you were the best possible hope. And you're blowing it. And so they shouted, you're dead to us. Crucify him. It doesn't matter what happens. He wasn't who we thought we were. He wasn't who we thought he was going to be. Though he brought salvation and life to dead people, they rejected him because he didn't deliver what they thought they needed. He was there to deliver so much more, and they missed it. They didn't recognize that the salvation he was bringing was better than the salvation they hoped for. Jesus could make your earthly life better, and your earthly life will still end. He could heal your body and your body will still grow old and die someday. His primary mission on the earth was not to make our earthly lives better. It is to make our dead hearts come alive. It is to set us so free in Christ that we are no longer bound and hemmed in and oppressed by the circumstances of our life. That whether we are advancing or retreating, whether we are rising or falling, it doesn't matter what's happening in my life. In Christ, the great work of God is that I'm free from all of that. That whether I'm broke or whether I'm flush, it doesn't matter because I'm alive and I used to be dead. I was blind and now I'm able to see. That's the mission of Jesus. That's the salvation he brings. And if you want something more from him, there is nothing more than that. That's the greatest thing he could offer you. is freedom from what happens down here. So that no matter what happens, you're able to say it is well. So let me give you one final exhortation. That is to receive Jesus.
having walked a great distance, the entire journey uphill, he finally crests the peak of the Mount of Olives. And at about 2,660 feet above sea level, when you crest that peak, you're treated to an amazing view of the entire city of Jerusalem. And as he stands there looking down at a city that his Father in heaven loved so much, and as he hears, he sees ahead of him a road lined with people waving palm branches and shouting him in, saying, let's go. You're the guy. We're going to get this. It should be a happy day, a triumphant day. His disciples would have looked at him expecting to see him going, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. This is my day, the day I waited for. You don't have to be quiet anymore. You're with the winner. And I picture Jesus going, let's ride. Just coming down the hill, down through the Kidron Valley, into the gates of Jerusalem. But his disciples look at him, and that's not what they see. Here's what they see. Jesus is looking at the city, and he's weeping. And he's not weeping because he's scared about the suffering to come. He's not weeping because of self-pity for the death he would endure. He's weeping because he loves the people in that city, and he knows that they're going to reject him. That the waving of their palm branches means nothing. In the same way that crowds all over the world clap their hands and sing songs to Jesus, but in their hearts they have missed completely who he is. They have never received him. They make noise. There's fanfare, but there's no receiving of him into the depths of their hearts. And he knows it. And the false sense of security that keeps them moving breaks his heart. And he says to them, there is a consequence for missing the day of God's visitation in your life. There's a consequence for missing the window during which you are invited to take his gift of salvation. I remember my son was supposed to be in the Illinois State Residence Hall at U of I, and it wasn't his mistake. In the end, I think it was mine. We went through almost the entire registration process for the housing contract, but there was one last step. It looked like we were done, but there was one last button to click. And I will own this. I forgot to click it. And we went for months thinking, he's all done. Only to realize, he sends me an email, go, Dad, what is this? It says, I don't have a housing. And I looked, and like, oh, Lord. And so at 12.17 a.m. on the day of the deadline, we got it in. Submitted full payment. And they said, sorry, you're too late. I actually drove down to U of I, went to the housing office, looked at the guy on the chair behind the bulletproof glass, bulletproof for a reason, I, I discovered. <clears throat> and he sat smoking and said, 1217 is still 1217, the day after. I'm like, are you lucky? It's bulletproof, buddy. And, um, and I realized that that's the nature of things. That while the window of invitation exists, you walk through. Because there actually is a time when the window closes. It isn't as if you can come to your senses later and go, oh, my bad. There's always forever. There's always another chance. That's something we as Americans have a hard time accepting. But this is an invitation 
that doesn't just stay open forever. You don't know how long you will walk the earth. You don't know how long Jesus will tarry. You don't know how much the hardening of your heart today will lead to the hardening of your heart tomorrow. And there's a consequence for missing that window where you could receive the invitation of Jesus. That you can take hold of the salvation he's offering and the consequence is huge. And he's weeping over the city because it's a city full of people there for religious observance and most of them are dead men walking. They have rejected their Savior. Jesus goes on to deliver a prophecy of impending doom for the city of Jerusalem in the earthly reality. That a time is coming when your enemies will destroy the city in God's judgment over you. It would turn out to be an amazing, stunningly accurate prophecy of what would happen 40 years from then. As the Roman army under the the command of Titus Caesar, would besiege the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They would build palisades all around the walls. They would build an entire wall all the way around the circumference of the city, not, (laughs) not to protect themselves from the people of Jerusalem, but to hold the people of Jerusalem prisoner. And when the walls finally broke and the Roman army frustrated and upset finally breached the city. Even Caesar could not hold them back. They went on a murderous, furious rampage throughout the city and murdered, by some estimates, 90% of the town's citizens. Indiscriminately, men, women, old people, children were slaughtered by these soldiers. He had given strict orders not to burn the temple, but there was no stopping these soldiers. And they burned the temple to the ground and they tore the walls down to the foundation. So that Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, said, when I beheld the city after the Romans were done, no one would believe that it had ever been inhabited by human beings. It was a devastating earthly depiction of the real consequences of missing Jesus, of ignoring the invitation of God to be saved. He's saying, be saved. Because I'm not saving you from a fake doom, but from a doom that is very real. And I don't delight in anyone missing out on this. Be saved. Because if you fail to be saved, the consequences are terrible. See, Jesus doesn't look at the destruction of Jerusalem and gloat. John records that that future vision broke his heart And this is the heart that Jesus expressed earlier in Luke. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. Listen to his heart. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. I think that's the heart of Jesus looking out at many how much he wants to save. And the pain that seizes his heart as person after person says, no, thank you. No, thank you. I don't need it. I don't have it. You know, at Harvest, I can't remember many times we've done an old-fashioned altar call or an invitation to receive Christ. Christ. 
But I want you to know that entrance into the kingdom is not through some supernatural osmosis where you breathe the air exhaled by other Christians and it infects you like a virus. We follow Jesus by saying to him, I see you. I know what you've come to do. I recognize you and I receive you. There is no other salvation but the salvation that comes from you. And one day all this, good or bad, is going to end. And I will stand at the threshold of the next world and I will need to believe in something. I will need to trust in something. And Jesus says to each of us, there is life on the other side of that veil. This doesn't have to be the end of your story. Receive him and be saved. And if you've never done that, this is the day that you can do it. This is the moment. There's no preamble. There's no prerequisite course you have to take. But this moment, you can receive Jesus and say, I accept with grateful heart what you hold out to me. And I recognize that you're saving me not from this life on earth, but from the deadness of my soul. And you will make me come alive no matter what happens down here. If you haven't received Jesus into your heart, will you receive him today? If you've turned to him only for help with this earthly life, will you recognize him for what he is? And if you disregarded him because he is weak, and he's not worthy of your respect, would you understand that he is meek, because of our weakness and that through his gentleness we are saved. I want to invite the praise team to come up and uh, we will sing a last song, but I want to invite you just into a, a short time of prayer. Sometimes when I see my own children growing up in the church aware of who Jesus is, when I see Zoe and Abby in our Bartlett small group running a little VBS for the younger kids every time we meet, I think, God, I have so regret the wasted years of my childhood sitting in the church and missing the point. How could I have lived so many years right in front of you and not seen who you were, not laid hold of every good thing you're trying to give me? How could I have wasted all those amazing years? And then I think of my grandfather who, after he was 80 years old, finally bowed before Jesus Christ. And the short years he had left, he read the Bible more times than I ever have. He lived more joy than I could describe to you. He didn't stop smiling for like five years. Like someone had told him a joke that wouldn't allow him to stop laughing. And I know he was making up furiously for the wasted decades. But even in those short years, he lived more than most people ever live. You don't have to waste your life standing in front of a Jesus you don't recognize. You receive him and your dead heart will come to life. This place will feel right for the first time.
because you will be alive. So with those words in your heart, I want to invite all of us to just pause for a couple minutes and sit quietly before Jesus and let him reveal himself to us and send out an invitation. Receive whatever invitation he holds out to you this morning. Let's just sit before God in prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.